I want to talk to you this morning a little differently than normal. I have been going through for the last few years. We've been studying the book of Romans. As you know, we finished chapter uh, 8. And it's a logical break if we were going to do some things and insert some, some special um, sermons after chapter 8 and before chapter 9. Once we get into chapter 9, there's really no break. There's no off-ramp until after chapter 11. It's one succinct unit. So in looking ahead at this break, uh, there were several things that I wanted to talk about that were not upcoming in the book of Romans. Some of them purely expositional, like prayer, right out of Colossians uh, in our last study. And this one is just more me sharing my heart with you and having a little bit of a high-altitude Bible study. One of the things that's a little bit shocking for us as elders as we pray and look at, at what's happening in our church is, uh, is to, to actually do what... A lot of people don't like to talk about it, and that's to count. And the reason that we count is because these are souls that the Lord has given to our church to oversee. And as we've grown as a church, it's always important to go back and look at have we really covered, have we really embedded ourselves in the foundations and in the basics. Uh, we were, um, I think, uh, last Sunday or two Sundays, two Sundays ago, um, what they told me was the highest attended Sunday in Mission Road's history. I think there were 585, uh, which means we're right knocking on the door of 600. Now, people don't really see that if you're in first service or second service. Now, I probably have the, the exact opposite response to that as most. Um, you want to see the Lord increase numbers, but when I see that number, it, it terrifies me from this standpoint. As the Lord is adding souls to our body, those are souls that need to be overseen. Those are souls that need to be shepherded. Those are souls that need to be unified in solidarity doctrinally and in, in focus with the Lord. So over the next week or two, or a couple of weeks, I'm not sure exactly how we're going to end it. I have eight things I want to talk about, and I really wanted to do it four. So is I want to talk to you about some things that we need to go back and circle over and over again, if not once a year, even more so. And today is specifically important because over the last, I don't know, six to nine months, there have been an unusual amount of questions about the subject of baptism. Now, baptism is critical in the Christian life. It doesn't save you, as we'll see in a moment, but it's very important. Now, some of you are going to have the temptation right now to say, well, I've been baptized. This is not for me. Can I suggest it's very important that you understand what the Lord, what the Bible says about baptism because that was a part of actually the gospel presentation. If you would take your Bible and turn to the book of Acts chapter 8. Let me say again, baptism cannot and will not save anyone. However, we're going to read an account of Philip sharing the gospel with a guy from Africa who he met on the road. And a part of that discussion in the initial invitation to believe the gospel was an understanding of and an explanation of baptism. It's a very interesting, it's a very charming and heartwarming, encouraging story here in Acts chapter 8. You know it well. Let me read it beginning in verse 25. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But 
an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a desert road. So he got up and went. I love that. God says, do this. He gets up and goes. And there was an African, an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official from Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. This is remarkable. This is, this is obviously a man from Africa, a man of a different race than the Jews, who had come to faith in Yahweh, the Jewish God, to such extent he went to Jerusalem to worship and had a copy of the Torah. At least he had a copy of Isaiah and was reading this. He was having his quiet time on this chariot going south back toward Egypt. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Now, just a little footnote. I don't know about you, but I don't believe that God speaks audibly to us, but I definitely believe that God leads us definitively. Have you ever had that temptation, that that, uh, thought that you need to share the gospel with someone? This overwhelming, I want to tell them about Christ. Well, let's think about that a moment. Does that come from the devil? No. Would that come from your flesh? No, there's only one place that prompting could come from. Philip had that prompting here. Go up and join this chariot, this carriage, this caravan. Just go get in line with these people who are walking with this very important uh, uh, Ethiopian going back toward Africa. Philip ran up and heard him reading the prophet and said, Hey, do you understand what you're reading? What I like, there's so many little interesting intricacies about this passage. He was reading out loud. The Bible was meant to be read, and I think it was originally meant to be read out loud. Just sometimes read it out loud. It sounds differently. This guy was reading Isaiah out loud, maybe for the the people in his little entourage to hear. And he said, well, how could I? How could I get this unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Imagine like an old western stagecoach. This is kind of the idea. He, he invited him up on the bench, on the chariot, where there are people or, or animals pulling this along. And he sits there and he has this expository moment with this man from Africa. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading, the providence of God, was this, Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to slaughter a lamb before his uh, uh, shearer, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth? The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me. Of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? This is one of the great questions of the Hebrew Jewish scriptures. When you read Isaiah 53, everyone has to answer, who is this talking about? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road and when they came to some water, the eunuch said, look, Water, what prevents me from being baptized? Did you see what just happened there? Isaiah 53, the messianic prophecy of the suffering servant, 
the presentation of the gospel to questions that were asked. And in that presentation of the gospel included, you should be baptized because you've believed. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. He answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water. There's no sprinkling happening here. They went down into the water. Philip as well as the eunuch. And he submerged, immersed. He baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, not out of a little cup they were sprinkled with, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. This is just weird, odd. They come up out of the water. And the Lord snatched Philip away. You say, well, what does that, what does that mean? And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way, or as he was going on, he was rejoicing. He, he didn't care because he was so happy he was saved. But Philip... <laughs> This must have been so odd, this transportation supernaturally. He found himself in Azotus, and he passed through and kept preaching the gospel to the cities until he came to Caesarea. There's so much to talk about there, some of which is inexplicable. He baptizes this African. He comes up out of the water. And he opens his eyes in another city. Talk about the moving of the Lord. The point of this that I want to isolate this morning, though, is that because this man understood the gospel, he also understood I should be baptized, which brings us to answer the que- ask the question, what, what, what is this thing? Why are we, what is baptism all about? So many questions surround it. We all know the Great Commission. Jesus, in Matthew 28, came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples, that's the verb, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is central to the command to make disciples. It's it was unheard of in the early church that any believer would not be baptized. There was no such thing. It went hand in glove. Romans 6 actually uses baptism as a synonym for conversion. As you're baptized into Christ. Was he talking about the fact that the water got you into Christ? No. That was synonymous with your being baptized. Your public affirmation of faith in Christ. The first sermon, the first Christian sermon in Acts 2. Peter said to them, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That day, 3,000 people believed. And get this. 3,000 people were baptized. It's interesting to me that baptism has fallen on such hard times in the Christian church. Um, Why would someone who believes the gospel refuse to be baptized? Now, I want to talk to you as your friend. I want to talk to you as your shepherd, as your pastor. I'm not trying to, to make any digs. I'm trying to expose some things that could be resident in your heart if you've believe the gospel and not been baptized, why would someone not be baptized? Well, first is ignorance. They just, they just don't know because no one ever explained to them that it's a point of obedience. 
it's enough if Jesus said be baptized to be baptized, is it not? Pride. So many people, you have heard people stand right there over and over and over who've been saved, who've been converted for years, who said, I put this off for so long because of my pride. I was embarrassed. And yet, I, I've never found anyone who watched or experienced someone's baptism long after their conversion, who kind of shrugged their shoulders and wagged their head and said, I can't believe they waited so long. It's always a happy moment, isn't it? Praise God. And just as a, as a little footnote, your baptism as a point of obedience to Christ may be the easiest part of your sanctification in your whole life. Can you think of any other point of obedience you do one time and you're done? Don't you wish fighting lust was that easy or fighting covetousness was that easy or, or jealousy were that easy that you just do it once and you're done? Baptism is it's the easiest part of the Christian life. Pride can keep you from it. Indifference, ah, I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's not that important. Yet Jesus commanded it. Defiance. I will not be baptized. That little guy with the striped tie cannot make me do it. I'm talking about another preacher, of course. The only defiance is with the Lord. Unbelief. Some people refuse to be baptized because they're really just... They're unconverted, and so it's not a priority. Obeying Jesus is so far down on the priority list because Jesus isn't even at the, at the first or second or third place in their priority list. And maybe a sixth reason is just misunderstanding. They just don't understand. I've had probably a half dozen conversations in the last few months where people have said something like this. Well, I just want to make sure I'm ready to be baptized. I want to be strong enough to be baptized. I want to be mature enough to be baptized. How long was the Ethiopian eunuch discipled before he was baptized? Not very long. So for our time this morning, I just want to back up and ask five questions. Five simple questions to understand more what baptism is. This should help you as a parent in helping your children decide if and when. This should help you as a believer to relish in the fact that you've never been publicly identified with Christ. Even if you have been baptized, there is something in here for you as well. And if you haven't, if you feel like that I'm targeting you, just know that I am. <laughs> of course we are. I want you to be obedient. Question number one, what is baptism? What is baptism? Let me take you into the Greek language for a second. The Greek word is baptizo. It was one of those odd kind of transliterations that never got translated uh, in the English language. And the reason is, I suspect, because they wanted to baptize babies, and so they didn't translate the word baptizo. They transliterated it. They just brought the word over into English without translating it because the word means to immerse to submerge. It was used of a Jewish mikvah. It was a, a ceremonial cleansing in which you would, there were two steps, two stairways. You would go down into this ceremonial pool and come out of the ceremonial pool. There was nothing sprinkling about it. The word just simply means to immerse. It means to go all the way under. It was used in a commercial sense of dyeing clothes. Now, when you dye a cloth, 
you would baptize it. You would put it into the dye and pull it out. Otherwise, you'd have tie-dye. That's not what they had in the ancient Near East. They would, they would dye something by dipping it into the solution, into the, the dye. The verbs bapto and baptizo are never used in the passive sense. What that means is that there was no grammatical place in the New Testament where water is applied to another that is sprinkled on, touched on, poured on. It's always active. You, you baptized, you, you went into the water. And never are those verbs used in the sense of um, salvation. Just as a point of, uh, of being baptistic, we are baptistic here at Mission Road Bible Church, which means we're Baptist in nature, not necessarily in denomination. Well, not in denomination at all. Uh, Baptist means we believe in believer's baptism. You're baptized after your conversion. John 3, 6, Jesus went into the water, up out of the water. John 3, 23 says John went into the water to baptize. It had to be deep enough to submerge someone Acts 8, we just read it. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch went down into the water. They came up out of the water. If it was sprinkling, why didn't he just go get a cup and just save everybody some towels? The New Testament says nothing about pouring, sprinkling, touching with water, or baptizing babies. Not one verse. It was an act by which an adult was placed into the water because of their faith. Had great spiritual significance in, in the early church, and it should have in ours as well. The significance of baptism, the spiritual significance can only be depicted in immersion. You are baptized into Christ. It means it's a picture in Romans 6 of being dead and buried. It's hard to get that out of just sprinkling. Now, let me just give you a little footnote here while I'm, while I'm kind of uh, launching an assault on, on baptism by sprinkling. There are occasions where that could happen. Someone who's a special needs or someone who has a, a, a tracheotomy. I've seen situations where the person literally could not be submerged. God knows the heart, but those are exceptions, not the rule. We had a young lady at Grace Community Church when I was a pastor there who uh, had a very severe, she had a tracheotomy and very severe uh, issues with surgery with uh, breathing and and she couldn't go under the water, so we, we got her down, and we got her in about shoulder deep, and, and that was it. And I don't think that everybody in there was a council in heaven to decide, was that, was that okay? But those are exceptions. Those are exceptions. Now, when you come into the New Testament, there's, there's two different baptisms. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which happens at conversion, which means you're immersed. It's a, it's, a, it's a metaphor. You're immersed into the Holy Spirit. And there's water baptism. Solidarity. It's you go down into water and you come up out of the water. That's what baptism is. Let's ask number two. What does baptism mean? What does it mean? Very simply, identification and symbolism. That's all it is. Identification and symbolism. Baptism does not, cannot, and will not save anyone. That's so sad that so many think it does. Listen to the, uh, the current catechism in the Catholic Church, quote, 
Baptism is the first and chief sacrament of forgiveness of sins because it unites us with Christ who died for our sins and rose for our justification so that we too might walk in newness of life. That's Catechism of the Catholic Church, page, paragraph 977. He goes on, the writer does. Justification, that's being saved, has been merited for us by the passion of Christ. It is granted us through baptism. It comforts us, conforms us to the righteousness of God who justifies us. It has for its goal the glory of God and of Christ and the gift of eternal life. It is the most excellent work of God's mercy. Paragraph 2020. Do you hear what's being said there? That baptism is what saves a person. What saves a person? Faith in Christ. An infant cannot have faith in much of anything except this next meal. It's impossible. This issue of infant baptism has been a debate and a, um, an issue in the church for, for millennia. Uh, great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon on June 5th, 1864, preached a sermon that caused a major stir in London. It was on the front page of the newspaper. Don't we wish sermons would be such that they would cause a ruckus and be on the front page of the Kansas City Star? The sermon was a calculated and direct attack on the Anglican church's view of infant baptism. Listen to what he said. This is what he got in trouble for. This was printed on the front page of the London newspaper. If this be your teaching, that regeneration, being saved, goes with baptism, I say it looks like the teaching of a spurious church which has craftily invented a mechanical salvation to deceive ignorant, sensual, and groveling minds rather than the teaching of the most profoundly spiritual of all teachers who rebuked the scribes and Pharisees for regarding outward rites as more important than inward grace. He's talking about Jesus. He went on to say, if you, but you will say, why do you cry out against it? This infant baptism. He says, I cry out against it because I believe that baptism does not save the soul and that the preaching of it has a wrong influence, a wrong and evil influence upon men. Then he concludes this sermon with these words. Remember, this is printed on the front page of the London newspaper. I do beseech you to remember that you must have a new heart and a right spirit and baptism cannot give you these. You must turn from your sins and follow after Christ. You must have such a faith as shall make your life holy and your speech devout or else you have not faith, the faith of God's elect. And into the God's kingdom you shall never come. I pray you shall never rest upon this wretched and rotten foundation, infant baptism, this deceitful invention of antichrist. Oh, may God save you from it and bring you to seek the true rock of refuge for weary souls. Wow. Why is Spurgeon so animated about this? Because so many then and so many today will look back at what happened to them as a baby and think, I'm safe, I'm secure, I'm okay. Baptism is just a symbol. It's an outward expression. It's a public identification. A little... Uh, a historical footnote that you, you, you know, maybe you don't know. There was lots of baptism before Jesus. Remember what his forerunner was, is, is named? John the 
Baptist. He was baptizing. The Essenes were baptizing. The Gnostics were baptizing. Baptism was a way of either ceremonial cleansing or to prove to a group that you now uh, identified with them, to prove to a, a people that you identified with a new group. It was a way of joining a club. It was a way of announcing that you now are a part of this group of people. And Jesus took that on and said, that's the way we're going to show when a person has truly committed their life to me that they have now identified with me and the church. Jesus said, be baptized. Baptize believers. Which raises the next question, who should be baptized? Now, this gets really, really interesting and sticky in some circles. And I want to try to cover it as quickly as possible, but I know there's going to be lots of questions, and I would encourage you, if you have them, especially about your children, let's have a a meeting, let's talk, we can sit over coffee and, and discuss these things. I've done that with several in our church. Who should be baptized? The simple answer is converted believers, Christians. Every instance in the Bible of someone being baptized happened after their clear conversion. Matthew 28, Acts 2, 38, Acts 8. Now, some will say, hang on. In Philippians, uh, excuse me, in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer believed and his whole household were believed, so that had to include infants. Well, no, it doesn't. I have as much proof that that was only adults as anyone has that that included an infant. It's, it's, an, it's a non-proof text for any position. Also, our friends who are, uh, believe in infant baptism would say that it replaces circumcision. There's only one problem with that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say anywhere that baptism replaces circumcision. That's a logical jump that's not supported by one single verse. I've seen entire books devoted to refuting that proposition, but we can make it really easy. The Bible doesn't say it anywhere. Nowhere is a connection made between baptism and circumcision. And if you repress that a little more uh, uh, poignantly, then only males would be baptized, right? It doesn't make logical sense to, to bring that over as a substitute. Now, part of this question is the fourth question, which is what so many parents wrestle with. Kim and I wrestle with it with our own boys. Number four, when should a person be baptized? This is especially traumatic and especially troubling and especially joyful in parents raising little ones in the church. I think it's the testimony, I hope it's the testimony of my own three sons that they, there was never a time they could point to in their life when they didn't believe the facts of the gospel. Christmas and Easter were checked off. They believed that that happened. They they believed the stuff about Jesus. But there's a difference between believing facts and being converted. John says, many of them went out from us because they, Paul says, because they were not of us. Jesus said there are four soils some, three of the soils are going to look like there's an initial response to the gospel, but in the end, they're going to prove that they're unconverted. The simple answer of when should a person be baptized is after their conversion. So what about children? This is a tough question, and I want to tell you, I have seen, our staff, in fact, read this last week, an article 
there are spectrums of this. Some people, the church I grew up in, basically, if you were four years old and you could sing Jesus Loves Me, you were in the tank. You were baptized. I mean, every child who could do it boosted the baptism numbers. I mean, if you want to have an, a, a revival, go into the five-year-old department and say, who wants to go to hell? Who wants to go to heaven? Okay, then be baptized. You can add 3,000 to the church pretty quick. Wisdom should reign. When is a child who grows up believing the gospel truly converted? Three words. I'm not sure. I don't know. That's something that you work out within your family. It's something you work out with your elders, with pastors, to really rethink about this. I do want, do want to tell you this. I have rebaptized dozens of dozens of people who were baptized at a young age only to later come to faith in Christ. I was baptized at nine years old, mostly because John Nelson and Daryl Oliver, my friends, were baptized, and I didn't want to be left out. Wasn't converted until I was 16. So this might sound odd. Talk about pride, pride keeping you from being baptized. I was re-baptized at Grace Community Church while on staff as an intern my first year of seminary. I'm studying. You're supposed to be baptized after your conversion, and I did the math. This is Tennessee math. It's very simple. I was baptized at nine, converted at 16. Hmm. And so I was baptized again at 25. If you believe the gospel, baptism should follow. However, wrestling with these issues with a, a child, a junior higher, or senior is not easy. One of the papers that our staff read this week, thinking about this and talking about this, took the position that really a, 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 a child who grows up believing should not be baptized until after their first year of college. Because... They, you need to see what their faith looks like when they're out of the home and it's been tested. I mean, I understand that at some level, but I don't, I don't have any Bible verses for that. Here's the test I use internally in, in our own family, and I would, I would lay this burden on you as well. When should a person be baptized? When you want to be fully accountable for the entire weight of representing Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Let me go to the negative and the positive. The negative first. Anyone who is a baptized believer is now subject to first, second, third, and fourth step church discipline. So when I talk to parents who want their, their six or seven or 10-year-old baptized, I say, well, let's, let's think this through. Once they publicly identify with Christ, if they ever have a season where they go off the rails, you understand we have to stand in front of the church and, and treat them as if they're an unbeliever if they don't respond in the first three steps. That's a heavy burden. That kind of makes you step back and say, well, do I have enough confidence in this profession of faith to say that? Now, also, just a footnote about children's uh, progression towards salvation. There's a moment when every person is saved, but you also understand, if you've raised children in the church, there are lots of little epiphanies, right? Lots of little moments, camps they go to, sermons they hear, uh, uh, people they talk to, and they, they're convicted and they say, I'm, I, I really got saved. Well, maybe so. Praise God for that. 
but maybe not yet also. Wisdom has to reign. And one of the tests I use is once you say publicly by baptism, which is your public identification with Christ, I am now fully accountable for my faith. Understand what that means and the implications of that. That's the negative side. The positive side is what a joy for parents to talk to their kids about faith. We, uh, our, our family's conviction, I'm not really ready to, to, to teach this book chapter and verse. I think I could get there. But our family conviction is that we, we wouldn't allow the, the, the boys to receive communion until after they were baptized. Why? Because if you're a believer and you're unbaptized, you're in a state of disobedience. And 1 Corinthians 11 says, do not take the table in an unworthy manner. Repent of all that you know. Therefore, you're in an unrepentant state if you're an unbaptized believer. So please don't eat and drink condemnation to yourself. Let's just wait till you're baptized. That's been the historic position of the church also in baptistic circles is, is you, you, you don't receive communion and you don't take communion until after you're baptized. I say it often. People have asked me so many times, Rick, why do you say when you do the Lord's table if you're a baptized believer? Because if you're not, you're in disobedience as a believer. Pretty, pretty simple. I'm trying to save you from eating and drinking judgment onto yourself, which is exactly what the text of 1 Corinthians 11 says. But that was one of the reasons when the boys were little, when they, they knew we, taught, we, we held to this, they would say, well, I want to be baptized so I can take communion. Well, there's something really precious about that. There's also something really curious about that. I wonder what that cracker tastes like. Is it really juice? There are no doubt many of you here this morning who have confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, but you've never been baptized. What a good day. What a good day to commit to doing that, to obeying Christ. Let me, let me say it again. It is the easiest part of your entire sanctification. There's nothing easier in the Christian life than being baptized because you do it once and it's done. I don't know of many other sins that you repent of and you do one time, and then you're, you've kind of got that sealed for forever. So let me be so bold as to suggest that a failure to be obedient in the manner of baptism, matter of baptism, the failure to take baptism seriously is at the root of some of the most immense problems in your life. Because you're walking in disobedience. And fifth, we've already hinted at this. What does baptism imply? It implies public association with Jesus. You are announcing to the world, I now belong to Christ. I've said it so many times, let me say it again. If I had my way, we wouldn't do baptisms right here. We would go down to Oak Point Mall, set up a tub, get in one of the fountains and do baptisms there. Do it at the beach, do it at the lake. Um, uh, ocean if we're having a retreat in Florida. Do it someplace where people can say, what, is, what are they doing? We had a baptism um, uh, in uh, Yellowstone, um, excuse me, Yosemite one time. The water, it was in spring, the water, what does water freeze at, 32? This is about 33. Um, and I had to baptize six people and they went down and went, whew, and that was done. 
I, I was blue from, from this. It was so cold. But here's what happened. It was such a sweet moment. We went around for about an hour before that to the campground where we were, and we said, hey, we're going to have a baptism. This will be interesting. We want you to come and see this. And we had a a group of about 40 people who stood around. They gave their testimony on the the side of the river. We walked down and baptized them. And for the next couple hours, those people were saying, what was that? What are you doing? Why are you doing that? Which was exactly the point of baptism in the early church. It's a public proclamation. Now, we have a sweet, nice baptism when it doesn't leak, and, it, and the heater works, that's even better. It's okay to do it in the church. But even as we do it here, we're announcing to the church, I am now accountable to the Lord for what God said. It's public association with the privileges and responsibilities of being a Christian. How serious is baptism? Let me say it again. I think once you're baptized, you now subject yourself openly and willingly to the process of church discipline and restoration, which is why I lean toward waiting till someone is older than younger. I mean, do we really want a, an eight-year-old who goes off the rail to go through first, second, third dis- step discipline, and then you have to ask them not to come back to the church or treat them as an unbeliever? I mean, that's a serious, serious point. And also, for the Lord's table, I, it's, how serious is baptism? It's a point of obedience. If you've been saved and unbaptized, you're not obeying Christ. And I just want to encourage you, please, please make that not, not a priority, but maybe the next biggest priority in, in your sanctification. There was a, one commentator who was speaking of baptism in the early, early church Very interesting uh, little paragraph he has here. Really gives the gravity of baptism. This is what he says. In the early days of the church, baptism was a declaration that the believer was definitely identifying himself with that group of people who were called Christians and were despised and hated. To be a Christian in that first generation meant something. To identify yourself with those who were called Christians meant persecution, maybe death. It meant being ostracized from your family, shunned by your friends. And the one act which Paul, which was the final declaration of this identification with Christ was baptism. As long as a man gathered with Christians, he was tolerated. But once he submitted to being baptized, he was declared to be a Christian before all the world, saying, I belong to this despised group called Christians. And immediately, he was persecuted, hated, despised. In baptism, therefore, the believer entered into, enters, entered into fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. A person might be a believer and keep it strictly a secret and thus avoid unpleasantness and suffering. But once he submitted to public baptism, he had burned all bridges behind him, end quote. If you've been baptized, praise God. Wasn't, wasn't that easy looking at other sins you deal with, other points of obedience? Wasn't it easier to be baptized than to, than to not uh, be frustrated with your husband or your wife or your children or your neighbor? So much simple, simpler. But if you're a believer, 
and you haven't been baptized, let me beg you, obey your Lord. None of Jesus' commands are negotiable, subject to bartering and to negotiations where you'll say, well, I'll do this if, or I won't do this because of. It's, it's so clear. Let me say it as a, as, a, as a pastor. Unbaptized believers can cause a church to be unhealthy really quickly. It's the Aiken principle. There's sin in, in the camp. Now, if, I hope that this is motivating to you, not me sticking my finger in your chest and tapping you on the sternum and saying, you better... I, Listen, I care about you. I love you. I want you to be in full fellowship with the one who's redeemed you. And this is such an important step. If you're a parent and you're working through this for your children, take it seriously, but take it slowly, please. I'm embarrassed to tell you that I baptized this one guy three times. He was baptized in junior high. Then he supposedly had a conversion in high school. He was baptized in high school. And I baptized him when he was about 27 years old when he had what he says was his real conversion. Now, frankly, I would rather do that than see a person never <laughs> baptized. There are worse things than that. Be careful, be slow, be deliberate, be theological, be talkative, be intentional about the, these issues. And a child, just if I can tell, speak to you as another dad, as a father, a child who wants to be baptized, but you're not comfortable with the, the testing of their conversion yet. And it's okay to say to them, God knows your heart. And if, if you want to take the Lord's table between, that's between you and the Lord and your family, because I'm not sure that's in a state of disobedience if the parents are saying, I want you to wait, because obeying parents is a point of obedience as well, right? This means we have to grow up theologically and spiritually. This means we have to be intentional in our families. This means we talk about theological and practical and obedience matters. What's the point, Rick? Why are you doing this? I'm concerned that we could have, as our church grows, confusion on what baptism is and what baptism isn't. And we want to be as absolutely biblical on this issue as we can. I'm about you to bow your heads for a moment. I'm going to pray for you. Um, our prayer room is going to be open in just a minute. If you have not been baptized and you say, you know, that's enough. I've procrastinated this thing. I've put it off long enough. I want to, I want to be involved in, in obeying Christ in every dimension. Uh, come and talk to Steve and Debbie. Talk to me. Well, let's talk about your testimony. Let's talk about it. There, there, you don't have to grow to a certain point to be baptized. You need to believe like the Ethiopian eunuch and then you're baptized as a believer, as a public proclamation and a symbol of what God has done in your heart. Baptism can't save you. Baptism won't save you. The thief on the cross was promised paradise and he was not baptized. But Jesus says, when you make disciples, baptize them. And we want to be obedient to that charge at Mission Road. So, Father, please convict 
where hearts need conviction. Encourage where others need uplifting. Show the light of your truth into those parts of our our lives that we sometimes look away from or marginalize or elbow to a, a deep part of forgetfulness. We want our church to be healthy and holy and obedient. So for those who have been converted, who've given their faith to Christ and still need to be baptized, give them courage. Give them joy. Just as this man from Africa went on the road rejoicing, unaffected by the fact that Philip had just dematerialized in front of his eyes. He he was so much more delightful about his conversion and his association with you. Give us that kind of joy and passion. We want to be obedient. Give us the courage and the grace and the empowerment to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.